Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, we are uh, starting 15 minutes late, which is early in the Fortress on a Hill world, but uh, an hour late in the Army world that we have uh, rejected. So, hey, I want to welcome, you know, listeners, streamers, new folks, old folks, and some people who are watching this days from now. Um, every once in a while, Fortress on a Hill gets together. We will put panels together. We'll do live streams. Uh, we want to do more of it. Uh, we want to have broader sets of guests and we want to do important themes. And frankly, while the mainstream media is ignoring it, has been ignoring it and acting like it wasn't happening uh, today, we are focusing on, uh, I would argue, and I think most of us would, the free press issue uh, of, of the modern age. And that is uh, the case of Julian Assange, uh, the figure uh, and, and his work and the war that's been waged uh, on his work and on his, you know, per, his persona. And so we have a pretty cool team today. Um, and I'm gonna let folks introduce themselves, but we've brought on essentially uh, a core panel that's here. And then we're gonna have people calling in. We're gonna, we're gonna have some, some guests jumping on, uh, old school uh, telethon style. Uh, I'm not selling snake oil that will save your soul, but uh, we are talking liberty. Uh, we are talking injustice and uh, and exposing what we can uh, for the man who exposes so much. Uh, and that, of course, is Julian Assange. So basically what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about myself, which I'm loath to do. Can't stand doing it. You guys know that. Uh, Henry's going to jump in and Kagan and, and Jesse and very much everybody who's here is going to give a little bit on, you know, their personal connection to this, who they are why they bothered to care, which is a radical act, right, in, in, in this time. Uh, it is a radical act to care about, you know, issues and folks that aren't directly related to you, that don't live in your gated community, that's either physical or in your mind. Uh, so we're going to do that. And then, uh, you know, returning guest and sort of like swap guest, uh, Steve uh, is going to come on and, he, and he's going to give us the nuts and bolts because he's, he's doing the hard work right now and that's going to drive the conversation. People will jump in. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll throw their two cents. We'll talk some serious stuff. We'll make plenty of jokes along the way. I promise. Will they be good? Most likely. Most likely they'll be excellent. Okay, refined. So look, um, Steve is going to cover exactly what went down in the case. You know, uh, the strengths of it, the positives, the limits, uh, how we move forward. But we purposely planned this live stream for today because of the verdict, right? Because of the extradition verdict, because of the impending, uh, you know, announcement that was coming and, and how profound it is, no matter how it came down. Okay. 
So, you know, a UK judge did in fact block Assange's extradition to the US to face uh, Espionage Act charges uh, that carry a stiffer sentence than white boy Rick in Detroit or Ted Bundy, right? Uh, or, or as strict, and, and this, is, this is interesting uh, and something we're gonna dig into. Why, why do I care, right? Uh, well, because I'm a human being and I'm not a monster, right? And I, I'm teasing a little, but frankly, I wrote an article, the first time I ever wrote about Julian Assange was I believe February of 2019. And uh, I, I called the article Soldier's Defense of, of Julian Assange. I had just retired, so I guess I still thought that I you know, was a, an army guy or something. And I do think that this is one angle that should matter because what's often forgotten, lost in the DNC, Hillary Clinton, does Assange like Trump, doesn't Assange like Trump. But in that conversation, right, what gets lost in all that is that so much of this connected to the empire to the aggressive wars that the United States has waged overseas and the millions that have died on behalf of it and the lies that were told to make it happen and continue it and continue to this day. Um, I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about Julian Assange and I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about Chelsea Manning or WikiLeaks or a lot of the stuff that was out until I was writing my book on Iraq, right? My first book, Ghost Riders of Baghdad. And I was actually trying to piece together, I was trying to piece together what happened on some of those patrols. I mean, it's in my head, I remember it, but I needed to know like what time did we get hit with the IED, piecing it together. And do you know what I used in the footnotes? The WikiLeaks cables from, you know, the Iraq War files. And they were magnificent. But of course, I was only looking for just key data sets. But what I really found out was something I suspected, that the U.S. government, the generals, the Pentagon, the people that I worked for were lying about whether there was a civil war in Iraq, were lying about a variety of war crimes that were being committed, and it was all right there before me. And I was embarrassed that it took me that long to figure out that connection. So that that was something that that really stood out to me and made me realize that from a veteran's angle, uh, there's a connect there, too. In fact, it's a huge one. But, you know, why should everybody care? Well, you know, I like to tell people how to think. It's kind of what I do, uh, a vaguely professional persuader. But he is a publisher, right? He's a lot of things, Julian Assange, just like all of us. But he's a publisher. Love him or hate him. You don't even have to like the guy. Just a publisher. And if you publish, right, and the government can take you down because they don't necessarily like what you publish, then the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and everybody else, they better watch out. They better watch out because it's very much a first they came for the socialists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for, you know, the homosexuals and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a homosexual. And then they came for the unions and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a union member. And then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I'm not a Jew. But then they came for me and there was no one left to speak. And the mainstream media has uh, not been following that advice. They're living it out again. And just my final point here is that uh, if, if Julian Assange is anything, and he's a lot of things, he's an exposer of empire. He's an exposer of empire, and he's an exposer of the, the lies, the fabrications, and the prevarications that are required to maintain an imperial entity whilst calling it a democracy. That's what he exposes. Uh, and he exposes that it is systemic. Uh, he shows that this is not a Republican or a Democratic empire. This is not a uh, a polite imperial or, you know, a coarse imperial. This is just the empire and it's a bipartisan enterprise. And so I think that that is the value, but I haven't even touched on really most of the free press issues. So that's why we care. For me, that's brief. Um, Henry, you know, bring down the house. 
What is on your mind? Well, Danny, I'm uh, really excited to to be here and talk about this issue. Um, I'm beyond thrilled that the verdict came down in in favor of of releasing Julian. Although, um, like you said, it does it doesn't fundamentally change much, and I'll, I'll we'll save most of the nuts and bolts for for Steve to talk about. But you you can see some of the reaction recently for the what what's now the decision but when the decision was forthcoming that many more mainstream journalists were talking about it than usually has mentioned julian assange um in the however many years now that he's been in captivity between his time stuck in the as a essentially as a prisoner in the ecuadorian embassy and then uh, now a prisoner for several years at belmarsh and that his health has deteriorated that his mental health has deteriorated that he has had so much of his humanity stripped through process because that that is what this is is it's a it's i've heard numerous people say it and i so 100 percent agree it is a punishment by process that is what has happened to him and hopefully you know fingers crossed this is the end of that punishment for him or that it is coming to a close that is the hope that is the goal but none of the the fundamental issues that um got him under the ire of uh, the American empire in the first place are, are changing because of this. There's the the judge, it was more on, on Julian's health than it was on about any of the supposed crimes that he committed. Um, but we have to remember, you know, on, on Fortress on a Hill, we talk mostly about, about foreign policy, about the American national security state, but we have to understand that for whistleblowers in America, dealing with our government and especially anything that's been made secret by our government, they are a target that our overclassification system allows for anything as long as the person who signs off on it being classified, it can be a, a dirty secret. It's not something that um, it's only going to embarrass someone. It has nothing to do with national security. It has nothing to do with protecting the lives of, of service members or the people in the intelligence community. It is about trying to make it so that your reviews at work or your reviews as a member of the military are as upstanding as they possibly can be. And that's completely wrong. Our, our entire national idea of being a whistleblower is wrong. Um, and and you know in addition to Julian you know a reality winner is still behind bars who and she also uh, was positive for COVID a time a time ago I hope that she's been able to recover and that her health is is doing well but but she got the book thrown at her for a, a single page and again she was a whistleblower she was trying to share something with the American public that the public needed to know and um. So, but I, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to be here to talk about this, and uh, I will pass the baton over to my buddy, my buddy Kagan, who has has re returned from his uh, his fortress hiatus, and we are so happy to have him here. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm the so podcast glad. Podcast prodigal son. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm back from my hiatus of working on the front lines, trying to help my homeless veterans survive amidst everything that's been going on. So, yeah, um, I I was glad, I was so glad to hear that they denied him extradition. Um, 
Yeah, like like you said, Henry, for the it might not be for the right reasons, but it is a reason and it's a perfectly valid one. Yeah. I mean, anybody who spends that much time inside, you know, you're going to develop uh, like it, some stuff, you know, especially cuz he was sequestered so much and like we know that you can have serious mental health issues from being by yourself a lot. And I mean, we're all kind of dealing with that now. <laughs> I think I, I hope that COVID helps us realize how much more mental health is important. But um, the thing that gets me that I was excited about, and I'm sure everyone else is going to talk about this too, was just the fact that we were trying to charge him under the Espionage Act as a publisher. And just like what the ramifications of that would be going forward if that was able to happen would be disastrous for you know, the integrity of journalism itself. And I, I'm glad you brought up Reality Winner, Henry. You know, I worked at NSA Georgia. I know the spaces that she worked in. And I was in during Snowden's, uh, you know, move, uh, getting out of NSA Hawaii. And I, I had a really good, you know, transformation myself of, of the understanding of classification. And, you know, you go from this idea of, oh, it must be classified for a reason. And then when you're in the community and you see the amount of shit that every day I would just be like, why is this classified? Like this, this is no sources and methods. This is no technical data. And that's the stuff that I totally understand being classified. Like you need to, you need to keep that on a closed loop, but for like the amount of overclassification, and I've talked about this before on the podcast too, it's just, it's insane. And people who don't, who like, it's hard for regular folks to know about it unless they're a part of the community or they have been a part of the community. And so I, I'm hoping that um, everything that comes out of this is just gonna help people start to look a little more harder at, you know, what does the government do in our name and why? And we need to figure that out. And if it's not in the best interest of us, then we need to bring it out to light. We need more transparency in government. And that's that's what all the whole Assange thing is about. They were just trying to squash, tell anybody that, you know, releases information that they don't like to just say, okay, you know, you're going to get in trouble and we're going to hit you hard. And you know, we have to fight back with all we have. So, um, uh, Jesse, if you could um, just kind of introduce yourself to listeners, uh, having, you know, first time on the pod, not going to be the last time uh, and do sort of the same thing. Um, some of you we'll see about that yeah, <laughs> on the ground, but yeah, see how you do. No, but uh, yeah. So if you could just give, give a little intro before you uh, talk your piece. Sure. My name is Jesse Zerwell, and I co-host a podcast called Facts on the Ground with Misty Winston, who will hopefully be joining us in a bit. And I, and you can find us on Twitter uh, at at FOTG Podcast, um, and that account has a link to our YouTube YouTube channel as well. But with regard to Assange. He first, he and WikiLeaks first came into my uh, my my view in 2010 when the collateral murder video came out, um, which Chelsea Manning, who was at the time Bradley Manning, uh, helped release, uh, despite the um, the false nefarious connections that the prosecution has been trying to make between 
uh, Chelsea Manning and uh, <clears throat> Julian Assange. Um, I think what she did was uh, a service to humanity. But I remember watching that video at work, watching the long version and listening to the dialogue of the the gunners and the their superiors who were giving them the go ahead to light them up as they like to say over and over in that video, which is really, f I mean, can you get any more cliche as you're murdering people? And yeah, it, it, I didn't know anything about Julian Assange or WikiLeaks at the time, but that was enough to compel me to look into it further and sort of as I was doing that, that's when the persecution of Julian Assange started and uh, basically built up to what it was today. And I think not only is he one of the most valuable journalists and publishers, but he's also he's also exposed um things we wouldn't otherwise know were happening in our name and i also think that he's he's an excellent writer he wrote this piece for newsweek that demolished one of luke harding's books about um being there but not really being there for the uh snowden leaks and I think he 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 calls a spade a spade and that's what really pisses establishment off and I think what he's trying to do is in the service of humanity not against it and all these all these people who are I think primarily upset because he's doing the job of a journalist and they can't do it because they're stuck in their offices doing clickbait journalism, he's exposing them for what they are at the same time as he's exposing war criminals. And I think that, you know, somebody like that is worthy of my solidarity. I think we can all say that. And that's why I stand by him. And I think that the trial, uh, if you want to call it that, that's been going on is, is a farce. And I think that Today's decision, however good it is, I think it's also there's a design there to paint him as crazy or psychologically unstable, and that's to be used in further proceedings against him. That's my speculation. I don't know that for sure, but it's something we should watch out for. But it's absolutely a good thing that he wasn't extradited. And yeah, that's basically where I stand with... Uh, with my affiliation or my solidarity with Assange and WikiLeaks. I mean, that's, that's some, some pretty solid points. And I mean, I think we'll have to go further. Uh, and I'm sure Steve will have things to say about, about, you know, the, the speculation about what the, what the end game is with some of the language and, and reasons that were used, you know, for, um, you know, for, for not extraditing him, because that is a common tool, isn't it? Uh, when, when one wants to, you know, dismiss or, you know, uh, kind of silence somebody, it's like, if they're crazy, then, you know, then, then nothing they say in the future, any, you know, no, no future work can be taken seriously and then kind right. of even hurts the past. Um, 
Henry, are we uh, having Steve pop back on here in a few? It looks like he's going to Yeah, he's, he's, he's reconnected right now. Right. You know, another thing you said, though, about um, the the collateral damage video in particular was interesting because when you do the comparison of 170 years versus the people, for example, he's not the only one who does it, but the people that Trump has pardoned, you know, Gallagher stabbing a teenage, you know, accused, <laughs> quote, terrorist, uh, you know, the the Blackwater guards who, you know, shot 13 people, at least maybe 17, including an eight and a 10 year old boy. And then, you know, even Duncan Hunter, who that's not the reason that he was, it wasn't for this, that he was convicted, but bragged essentially like offhandedly about killing uh, hundreds of civilians, right. And in Fallujah and stuff, which, you know, it's just, it's fascinating what the empire is upset by and what they're not. If you embarrass them, if you embarrass them, they'll come for you. If you Mm -hmm. murder people on their behalf and you might get a medal at the very Mm -hmm. least, you'll get a pardon. But uh, Steve, you're back. Um, why don't you tell us what you're up to? You know, kind of um, what's what's happening there. Uh, summarize the story. Introduce who's with you. Do the intros. Take it over. Use your charisma. Change the world. It's <laughs> <laughs> a tall demand. So Reiner. should I do that in the first ten minutes? Because I thought this was like an hour show, and I I don't want to I don't want to get it all done right up front. I like to drag these things out a little bit. Uh, so um, so so my name is Steve Boykin, and I I'm out here in Washington D.C. with Action for Assange. Uh, we just wrapped our our event for the day at the Department of Justice. We uh, we got out here. Um, Andrew and I got out here uh, Friday night. Uh, we started our events though yesterday at the British Embassy. Um, it was uh, it, it was successful. It was we had like sixty or seventy people with a, a disproportionate amount of them journalists. And when the journalists are the activists, um, we we should all step up and take note uh, as to why and what's what's going on. Um, we had planned uh, on holding a protest at the Department of Justice building today, and instead we we held a party uh, of sorts. We we went and we got cake and balloons. We did. We really did. I'm not kidding. We got cake and balloons. Um, <laughs> but uh, and uh, and the reason we did, of course, is because Julian Assange is not being extradited now. What? did happen um the that certainly there's a number of things that that were alarming and uh we should all sort of take note on um the the first and foremost is Vanessa Baratzer the judge agreed with every aspect uh of the United States's legal argument for extradition just down the down the road, uh, uh, charge after charge, argument after argument. No matter how, just I, I beautifully debunked that particular argument has been, um, both during the witness testimony in September and going as far back as Chelsea Manning's court martial in 2013. In some cases, the uh, U.S. Assistant Attorney General. Kronberg, this document, the indictment against Julian Assange, it reads like it reads like somebody read a spy novel 
but didn't quite know how to explain what it was that they read. So they just make up fantastical sounding words or scenarios in order to drive home a, a ham-fisted point. That's the Kronberg document. It's multiple works of fiction that rely on other works of fiction, like David uh, David Lee and Luke Harding's book uh, about their, their hit piece on Julian Assange. That is one of the central pieces of quote-unquote information in the U.S. Department of Justice's indictment is i i just i want everybody to realize how ridiculous that is um so that was certainly concerning one of the things that that was uh weird that we didn't see coming at all was the uh introduction of now suddenly julian assange is guilty of violating the official secrets act uh, of the UK, which is something that had not been brought up in, in court whatsoever. It was nothing that uh, the the prosecution or the defense talked about. Um, and yet here in reading the decision on an extradition case, we have a judge I seemingly editorializing, adding a charge, then convicting the defendant of that charge without any due process whatsoever, again, in the middle of reading a, a decision on extradition. That, that was incredibly weird. Um, a lot of her language and, and what she had to say about the UC Global stuff and uh, Julian Assange's uh, free speech rights and rights as a publisher in general, also very disconcerting. It was a 132-page decision. Uh, we obviously didn't go through all of that this morning on the live stream. We, we started at about 4 a.m. Um, we were in touch with uh, some of the folks from one of the London Assange groups, um, the conversation started off with, oh, hey, how's it going, guys? Yeah, I'm in front of the old Bailey. Oh, yeah, it looks like they're towing my car. And that individual handing the camera over to another activist who's like, oh, I'm getting harassed by the police. I should start moving. And, like, that was how the whole, that was how the live stream started off for us at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so that, that was weird. Um, by the time we actually got down to... Uh, the, the ruling Ooh, uh, a sort of a blubbering mess um, <laughs> absolutely sleep deprived over here uh, just out of sorts in general um, but uh, we're going to count today as a win <laughs> there's so much more that needs to be done we can get into all of that that's that's sort of the lay of the land um i am joined by my two uh two of my co-hosts for the free assange vigil it's uh, andrew smith and misty winston um and uh Misty, of course, is Jesse's co-host on Facts of the Ground as as well. We like to keep it really simple. What's up, homie? Just <laughs> hi, Jesse. 
hey. like three or four people with shows and then just recycle everybody <laughs> through everything else. And that, that, that way you have to plan less. It's awesome. I, I believe the term is incestuous. Um, <laughs> I was trying to make it sound a lot more complicated and a lot less hillbilly, but, but I mean, you know, that, that's going to be hard. It is. Um, wow. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this though because I'm I am just delirious. <laughs> okay, so we're all a little delirious. Let's be real. Um, we are, are very tired. Um, it's been a very um, strange day today. Um, you know, we all expected to wake up today to um, you know not good stuff. Um, and most of it, let's I mean, let's keep it in perspective. Most of this was not good stuff. Um, you know, she, like Steve said, agreed with the uh, the U.S. prosecution on all of the legal aspects of this. Um, so it was only on the uh, you know the the health the the, the medical uh, testimony that this was uh, blocked. Yeah, the conditions of U.S. prisons and the fact that the U.K. has managed to spend ten years beating this man down so that. Um, you know, he's uh, a suicide risk. So, you know, this is, it, it's, it's, um, it's important to celebrate um, this, you know, however small win, because I think it gives us a little bit of fuel to the fire. Um, but it's also important to keep it in perspective and realize that this doesn't end here. Um, this is just, you know, a, a tiny step in the right direction. And I mean, the real battle hasn't even begun yet, because like I said, this is all based on the medical testimony. And so, um, you know, the fight for the First Amendment and free press and free speech is still very much going on right now. So this doesn't end here. We have to keep keep pushing and keep fighting and you know like today we can celebrate but you know tomorrow the fight continues i think so um andrew do you want to jump in yeah hi uh, my name is andrew smith i'm one of the co-hosts for the free assange vigil and one of the co-founders for action for assange um so like misty said like steve said this isn't over this is uh I wouldn't call it the first win, but this is taking the beach at Normandy. This is planting a foothold in the territory of fascism and saying you will no longer be here. Um, and to me, I don't even truly understand how they didn't rule in favor of extraditing Julian because everything was against him. Like they, you couldn't even find betting odds that Julian wouldn't get extradited. Um, but he didn't. And it's thanks to the work of thousands of people at hundreds of protests, putting together probably millions of hours um, collectively to make this happen. Um, and it's in no small part thanks to the, the inspiration that we had as exploring this process. Because what, what really goes on is... It's not that we were making a YouTube show. It's not that we're trying to build a community. We we only fundraised when we were building actions on the ground. Um, we didn't ask for donations. We pumped other people's channels to help independent content creators when the pandemic was pandemic for what you believe it is to be um, was coming through. And we we tried to build a real system, like a real support system for change. And it developed into a multi-creator, multi-channel um, show that we would put out two days a week. And we're still going to because this isn't over. Um, but we've managed to build something that can't be taken down. 
because it's not there's no one giving marching orders the entire time we've done this we've asked people to do what you can with the time money and resources that you have like you don't have to go to a 10,000 person protest in Washington DC you could be on your street knocking on your neighbor's door handing them a flyer you could be it started with me literally just putting posters on telephone poles um, and it's just those small simple steps and a level of principled dedication where you can say this is the focus Let's get this done and find other people willing to organize in a postpartisan manner. Because the other thing that we started um, as action for Assange is a larger dialogue about we can't wait for elected leaders to come for us. And Julian's situation ex shows this extremely well. You have fucking Sarah Palin releasing a humble ass video saying, like, I'm sorry I was wrong. And then you have fraud squad Ocasio saying there's a lot to consider with Julian. Like, I don't know if they should. Uh, uh, she's going to defer argument. to caucus leadership. Right. Well, that was her answer on <laughs> reality winner. She yeah. was asked directly and she and, said, I have to. And Venezuela. Yeah. 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 It, but I guess long story short is find whatever it is, whether it's free speech, whether it's gun rights, whether it's uh, Medicare for all. Um, whatever it is that you find wrong in the world, chase that thing and do start one day a week and then see how that little voice builds that says, like, what more can I do? What more can I do? And then eventually you find yourself literally just in awe about the fact that the largest legal decision um, that no one thought could happen came out. Sarah Palin outlefted AOC and Joe Biden. I just want everybody to, like drink that in. Like, if, did you have that on your 2020 bingo card? Did you? S Sarah Palin bigger on international human rights, better on international human rights than I mean. I mean, I like to I like to drink. Every, but that sounds like a pretty strong shot. Every sitting Democrat. Every yeah. I I I did not I did not have that on my 2020 bingo card. No, no. And I'm also very disappointed because 2020 took so much from us, but it let us keep Henry Kissinger. Yeah. <laughs> and that just doesn't yeah. seem right. I mean, I don't know if there is what? one, but maybe his sentence in hell will be longer than Assange's. It'd be hard to do. It'd be hard to do because, I mean, they've got a pretty high, you know, possible sentence uh, if convicted. Do you ever think about what Henry Kissinger does on a daily basis, like his mundane routines? Like, can you picture him going to the food store and buying groceries? Or They don't sell adrenochrome at Trader Joe's. <laughs> They don't. They don't, they not, don't sell. They don't sell napalm there anymore, do they? It, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, like, at least the way I envision it for people like Kissinger and figures like that is is kind of this. Like, they just sit there and like do this motion, <laughs> like twiddle their mustaches and like hatch plans. It's basically like Pinky in the Brain all day. It's like, what are we gonna do today, Pinky? Same thing we do every day. Try to take over the world, you know, and succeed. <laughs> uh, I think that's part of it. You know, uh, Steve, if I can kind of raised something that was interesting to me and maybe you and, and anyone else can comment on it it's um you know right before you jump back on i was talking about comparisons like in terms of like the way the book has been thrown at julian assange but more than that like the torture and just the incredible efforts but um there, there's something going on here even in the reporting which i mean it's in the news which it hadn't been and okay that, i guess that's a positive surrounding the you know the verdict coming out but 
a lot of people seem to miss like the context and the backstory of how strange this is. And I know you guys don't, but but I'm a geek, right? And so I know a little about extradition. In fact, I know a little about American and British extradition backstory and crisis. And in the early 1980s, there was massive drama in the United States when in the other direction, uh, the UK was pushing really hard. Maggie Thatcher, great lady, you know, awesome, awesome gal. Uh, you know, proof that if you just put a woman in charge, things will get better, right? Biden must yeah. uh, But no, Maggie Thatcher- The iron really- lady. Right. The iron lady of all of all types. She was really pushing to get IRA, uh, quote, terrorists extradited to the UK uh, from the US. They'd go hide in New York and hang out in like the bars that I hung out in. Right. And there was an enormous thing here. And eventually they passed a law that made it a little easier to extradite, extradite accused IRA guys back to England. But this went on for years. There was congressional involvement, massive congressional pushback. People like Ted Kennedy were against it. Right. Where we're seen as like IRA supporters. And they made a lot of arguments that were not dissimilar to the arguments that were made by the the few folks or, you know, many, but not in the mainstream media who were fighting for Assange. You know, these guys can't get a fair trial. There's too much alarmism in England. They've already, you know, been kind of tainted. And what's interesting is there was none of that really in Congress or almost none. You know, this did not go on. There wasn't years worth of debate. And uh, and my final point on that, and then I just want to know what everyone thinks is, you know, why is that? But also... It was raised, I think Misty raised it. There's like this ancillary but instructive exposure that goes on, which is the brutality of the American carceral state. That was kind of mentioned, right, that it'll be bad for his health. But there wasn't enough on, you know, the quote from Greg Barnes where he said, you know, the greatest risk for him, Assange, is the U.S., is that in the U.S. he won't face a fair trial. Um, And I don't think there's been enough coverage of that, specifically that, you know, there's been so much alarmism sort of almost like red baiting, but like Assange baiting, that he's been essentially convicted in the court of public opinion, uh, absent real evidence or due process by a a bipartisan range of powerful people in media and in politics. Uh, So you can't do the thing that you do at the local level where you move the jurisdiction of the trial, right? Right. There's a really obscene case that involves race and a young white girl in Alabama. You can't have it in that county, you move it somewhere else. Well, you can't do that when there's been a nationwide conviction in the court of public opinion. And so those two aspects of it are interesting to me because I think one way you get people to care is to show them how not normal this is, how how unique this is. And then it raises the questions of why might that be, qui bono, et cetera. So I don't know what everyone thinks about that concept. Well, um, I, I love how you I love how you just you, you don't give anyone a lot to think about. You just ask a, a basic, straightforward <laughs> one, two sentence tops answer question. Um, so I, I uh, man, the, it is it's it's complicated. Um do you want to, where, where, where do you start? Where do you start with that? Where do you start with that? I mean, the comparison, the Magna Carta, probably. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, uh, so, um, the way you talk about the Irish Red Army and uh, the, Irish the Red Army, Irish, I'm terrible, Republican I'm so Army, the, the public <laughs> execution, essentially, of their name, the slander. Ah, uh, they're all commies. Yeah, so Julian had the largest global intelligence effort ever to degrade who he is and what he does. Anything from smearing poop on the wall to being a racist to being a Mossad agent. They found a way to make each and every individual group not like him for some fucking reason. Like, 
if you go like find the list of smears made by Caitlin Johnstone and you can see everything that has been levied against him by everyone from every side of the political spectrum. Um, and that was what they were hoping they could run through. They put the final nail in the coffin, they thought, with Russiagate making the Democratic Party who once loved him because he exposed Iraq and Afghanistan war logs. Right. They took that and basically wrote smear articles about him in Russiagate era while taking him off into prison. And they didn't say that he's going to jail because of Russiagate or he's going to jail, uh, well, because of the DNC leaks and exposing their election fraud or Podesta's pedophilia or um, the fact that the CIA could get into everything anywhere or the fact that Hillary Clinton's emails got released in 2017. Um, And And Luke Luke Harding at The Guardian took the reins on that. So uh, that piece is still up at the guardian it hasn't been retracted it's completely sourceless it says that manafort met with assange in the ecuadorian embassy multiple times and yeah it's still up there and luke harding please retire please go away Um, in terms of jurisdiction though danny as far as i know we only have one espionage court and that's the Eastern District of Virginia. And when you're in espionage court, you have no public interest defense. You uh, <clears throat> you can't do uh, much of, of the participation in your own defense. Your legal team can't say a number of words. There are certain words that have to be omitted from the transcript and switched over to nonsense words because they're so scary. These words are so frightening that they compromise national security. So you can't have them on a piece of paper. Um, the jury is poisoned against the defendant from the jump, especially in the Eastern District of Virginia, where the jury pool is largely going to be picked from people who are connected to the intelligence agencies in some way, shape, or form, either friends or relatives, spouse, something like that. They all live right in that particular area in the heart of the intelligence community. Um, We were seriously considering if it would be impactful or wise to do uh, education on jury nullification. Um, But if we can prevent extradition completely, we won't have to worry about jury nullification for Julian Assange. We will down the road for another journalist or publisher. This isn't going away. It's not like it, I, I keep saying this in every interview that I do today, but it's not like our, our press freedom problem stops today. You know, Reporters Without Borders and Freedom of the Press Foundation put out uh, a report a week or so ago showing that attacks on journalists have gone up 1,200% in the last year. You know, that, that is just in the U.S., 1,200% increase in attacks on journalists in one year. Um, and you want to talk about, you know, what the, the lack of the press reporting in this case. Well, I, Daniel Ellsberg speaks about uh, a chilling effect 
in terms of, you know, journalists not reporting on things that are going to get them in trouble or, or take away their institutional security, their job security. If you're in if you're in journalism because you went to Columbia J school and you have a pedigree and you're there for the access and you're there for the you know fifteen thousand dollars suits like there's a path for you there's a, a proven workable business model there if you want to be adversarial if you want to speak truth to power then you need to get used to being called you know a Russian puppet or an Iranian puppet or a Nazi collaborator or a, a Chinese stooge or what an Assad a sadist Assadist an, an Assangeist is a new one like Assadist that's the funny thing all these people like Oz Katerjee who claim to be uh, champions of Syrian human rights they don't even know how to pronounce Assad correctly mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'll fully admit to crackering it up a little bit from time to time. I, I'm, I'm, but I'm also not going to hold it over anybody's head. Yeah, but you're, now. you're not Oz Katerjee, so. Okay. I, that is true. That is true. Yeah. Uh, well, well noted, Jesse. Yeah. Well spotted. <laughs> Your powers of. Did you have anything you wanted to add to the, the general? What's it of Danny's question? I don't even remember what his question was at this point. You guys are right. Hey, Steve, I've got a, a question from Anthony here on YouTube. Okay. Um, he wants to know what are the ramifications of the U.S. not dropping the case, even in the event they lose all appeals? Julian can't come to the U.S. I mean, yeah, the, there's, there, there's a handful of things. I mean, it probably means that he can't go to uh, a five eyes country but this up we still gotta we gotta figure out whether or not he's even allowed bail which is something that's so ridiculous i i can't i don't i can't conceive why we're having that conversation but i mean yeah if if the u.s loses on all appeals but they still want to pursue charges they have to do it through a judge who's going to allow their case to go through so they're the u.s would have to spend at least some kind of time judge and district shopping to try and find a friendly place for where they could they could have that trial go through um in the meantime, it, you know, uh, Julian needs to find a country that doesn't have an extradition for treaty with the U.S. <laughs> or go see AMLO and Commander X, our our good friend down in Mexico. It, that that was that was a pleasant surprise seeing the the offer of citizenship and asylum from AMLO today. That was good stuff. And, it, and there's precedent there. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the, the guy I just mentioned, Commander X, who politically persecuted activist uh, and the first U.S. citizen to be granted political asylum for being a, a targeted for hacktivism individual. So it's not like uh, AMLO is without... You know, above granting asylum to someone who's pissed off the U.S. national security state. 
I think an important thing to remember too, though, is that the U.S., if they want to overrule some sort of extradition treaty they're involved with, they will do it. And you just have to look at the case of Leonard Peltier. Are you trying to shit in our Wheaties, Jesse Zerowell? Shit in your Wheaties? Is that what you're trying to do? Like, Wheaties are already shit, so why would I shit in them? Um. I think there's an, an interesting angle that I uh, will do my best to not take all the way back to an obscure conflict in Northern Ireland, which is hard. I can do that. Six degrees to the IRA is kind of one of my favorite games. But there's an interesting angle here of like, here's a man, right, Julian Assange, who uh, is is on trial for putting the media on trial. And now he's kind of trying our patience and exposing the media in a whole different way in the way that they cover it. And so I'm, I'm looking at the New York Times uh, initial piece this morning and uh, two and a half pages in Microsoft Word when copy and pasted in, not a very long article, but substantive. Uh, and there is no mention of the intelligence community uh, security contractor collusion in the embassy. Uh, of which tons of work has been done, right? I mean, there's been stuff at Gray Zone. There's been a variety of work everyone here is familiar with. And I think I'm hoping someone will jump in with it when when I kind of finish up here and talk a little about that. But there's nothing about that, not a word about that. But here's what there is. Um, Mr. Assange jumped bail in 2012, blah, 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 goes into the embassy where he has, quote, a parade of visitors, including the singer Lady Gaga and actress Pamela Anderson. And my favorite part, he had also angered embassy workers by riding his skateboard in the halls. Now, this is interesting. I deal with editors, right? Uh, I know that every word is kind of looked at carefully, especially when the word count is tight in a place like the New York Times. That was chosen to be included, which raises some serious questions. Like, I mean, was this was this piece designed to convict and smear him in the minds of like America's boomer dads writ large who hate yeah, their yeah. son's teenage skateboarding habit and his pop music taste? Yes, yeah. I think that's words really speak for themselves. This is really interesting. This to me seems like a, a cosmetic focus over like a consequential one. And I don't know, maybe someone can jump in who has some knowledge on the um, on the contours of that kind of collusion with the intel agencies that's just completely not mentioned and why it's not mentioned and why that shit is. So there there are two reasons why they're not mentioning UC Global. And one is because they can say it's an ongoing case and we don't want to comment on the the specifics of the case because they haven't wrapped it up when the jury and the Spanish court makes a decision. We'll come with a, a story about it. Same reason Vanessa Barates are used today. Uh in part of dismissing all of the UC Global testimony, including the three former employees that testified on the the last uh, last week of the witness hearing uh, at beginning of October of this year, um, the other is that they uh, they they're hacks, the bad. Disingenuous, cynical, poor at their job, just hacks. Um, and they know, they know that that uh, their outlet has a history of working with the CIA or working with the FBI or uh, when they need to 
outing someone who worked for the CIA or throwing someone who worked for the FBI under the bus. The New York Times is a, a weapon of the state when the state has a specific political target and sometimes it's another entity of the state and sometimes it's a private citizen but the new york times is there to be wielded uh, as a weapon um so they're not going to it's not like somebody at the new york times is really going to be like i can't believe that the cia was able to collude with this private organization that was there to keep people safe you know that's kind of what your job writ large is the press is supposed to do too and yet you frequently work with intelligence agencies to spread mis and disinformation and uh, undermine actual democracy on a minute by minute basis so fuck you really i mean uh, i don't know i hope that i mean i i hope that satisfies at least your initial curiosity that's my i've had my opinion i don't I, I don't know how many of you guys watch Kyle Kalinske or uh, Crystal Ball on their shows, but they just started a podcast and it's pretty awesome. But they were interviewing Marianne Williamson about like what it is like to be an outsider and try to get in that system and just trying to get any kind of like positive press was so hard for her. And something that she said that really resonated with me was just, you know, she said that journalists used to you know the last person that a journalist should believe is a politician the last because that is their role in our society right we call them the fourth estate because their job is to be another pillar in, in check against our government and she, but she was saying no instead of that they say oh look that politician talked about me like politics has become such a celebrity uh cameo fucking popular content popularity contest that even the journalists buy into that where they're like oh this person's talking about me i need to be favorable so they will continue to talk to me instead of that person is fucking bullshit and we need to call it out yeah i totally agree and i think uh you can see it most glaringly in the white house press pool uh the way people are called on by their first name and also remember the the childish hubbub with Jim Acosta when he was trying to ask like a completely non-provocative question but you know his body mannerisms and his tone were making it seem like it was this provocative question that was being censored and even like sort of slightly pushed the I, I don't know some poor young woman away I don't know what her job was but um yeah I think that it's you know so many journalists are obsessed with having access to power and you know being somebody who can sit there and be called on first or second to ask a question to the president or or the president's spokesperson and it's I understand. I, I completely disagree with it, but I understand it in the sense that people, people are, especially journalists, they sort of had a, have a fetish for that access to power. And so it's very easy for them to accept it and to fall into it and then to play along those lines. And I think because of that, that's why there's nobody 
really in the press pool who's ever pushing back against what's being said. I think maybe um, I might be getting his name wrong. Matt Lee, who's with the AP, he's actually very good about pushing back at these uh, White House press conferences. But yeah, by and large, they've just succumbed to this fetish with um, access to power. And that's why you see the non-questions that you see uh, on an almost daily basis, I think. And the the electorate buys so much into the notions of, of cult of personality that when in the 2016 primaries, when Hillary said that, you know, nobody likes Bernie, nobody likes Bernie. What, what the hell does that even mean coming from her? But she knows that people will hone in on that, whether someone is, is objectively kind or objectively an asshole. We, we grab onto that. And, and Danny, you know, back to what you were mentioning about the, um, you know, the Lady Gaga thing, uh, that people are so quick to grab onto those versus to have genuine questions. They don't look, you know, they like, oh, that was a really good answer versus this is the question I would have asked. We always should be as as Americans, as as conscientious citizens, wanting to know more information. And when we start hearing the same stuff over and over again, there's a reason for it. And people have to be willing to reach past that, reach past wanting to be close to politicians and get their accolades. You know, I absolutely loved, you know, when like when when Colbert roasted Bush at the White House uh, Correspondents Dinner. This was a long time ago, but his humor really hit at a lot of key points about George W. Bush. And part of it is that, you know, we've become so farcical that the comedians are the only ones who we think speak truth now, even though sometimes they're pushing the party lines and the, and the government's line as well, or within that, you know, this, the specific boundaries that they're allowed to discuss things. Kagan, one of the things that oh, well, Stephen Colbert sucks now. I'll just put that <laughs> out there. I'm with you. Yes, yes. <laughs> when he was at the Colbert Report, he actually did some decent journalism here and there. Now he is just oh, so. I mean, you you, you got to remember yeah. that was like 2005. Yeah, yeah. he did that White House <laughs> correspondence dinner. True, true. Little, but man, no, I mean, he was great. He was great. He he did some really, really wonderful bits the the first couple of years and got some people to show their whole asses that um, you never thought they would. And now it takes independent media and something as silly as, hey, maybe politicians should vote on popular programs to get a large section of the media to show their whole asses and be like, no, no, a, a, a global pandemic when everyone is out of work is not the time to have a discussion about health care. <laughs> we have post offices to name. And there's a military budget. And yeah, we, we should really... We've got other stuff that we need to work on right now. It's it's insane. And, Who's going to pay for it all? 
Right. And and look, the, to put this, to tie this to Julian Assange real quick, activism only works when you are able to get the word out about whatever it is that you're advocating for. If our ability to do that through a free press or through social media is gone, which would be legally um if the United States is allowed to uh, uh, get uh, an extradition approved on appeal, that's activism. Activism goes away. Activism that is legitimate, genuine grassroots activism goes away completely. All you are going to get is state-approved or corporate-sanitized astroturf movements that are specifically designed to suck up all of the energy that would otherwise go into a legitimate movement. Um, And we have enough of that already. Like, we don't need only that uh so i it really doesn't matter what your activism is or what your cause is if there's something that you feel passionately about then you need to get the word out about that the only way you get to do that is if you are still able to communicate with people in a way that isn't immediately sanitized and boy are we headed there so um, I'm just going to jump in real quick. We have uh, our our first special guest uh, is on the line audio. Um, ben, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing really good. Not only am I audio, I am video. Wow. You got me A and B all together. A, a, uh, true, a true treat. Um, so, hey, just uh, most people know Ben Cohen, right? Co-founder of Ben and Jerry's, but uh beyond that you know uh active in so many things uh friend you know fighter for justice and uh ben thanks for coming on and you you, you've been you've been interested in the assange case you've been active on it maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know why you got involved how you've done it and why do you think this is important sure danny uh first i just want to thank uh Whoever it was who was speaking before me, it says Steve on the screen. I don't know, the guy in the middle there. Thank you very much. I mean, I I really support what you were saying about activism uh, being something that uh, should be able to not have to be censored and... um, you know, that if the only activism we can do is the stuff that the uh, the government officially approves of, we're in big trouble because uh, the stuff that the government is doing is clearly against the law. And, uh, you know, that's really the reason why I was so drawn to uh, Julian Assange and his case of... Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, he's a national hero. Uh, He took the risk of revealing to the public what the government has been doing in our name and with our money. And uh, without that, we, the people, are not able to hold the government accountable. you know, I I actually visited uh, with Julian when he was in the 
Ecuadorian embassy in London. And what really struck me uh, talking to him, I mean, first, you know, I thought I'd be able to speak with them for 20 minutes. I mean, I ended up talking with them for the whole afternoon, about three hours. And, you know, what really struck me was just his, his kindness, his concern uh, for regular <clears throat> everyday people. Uh, and his, you know, his belief that uh, if he could just expose what was actually being done, if the people could actually hear about the reality about what their government was doing, that there would be enough of us that would rise up and stop it. Uh, and, you know, he was just uh, so, I don't know, I guess kind of uh, disappointed, disillusioned that, uh, that that didn't happen, that apparently you can reveal all the illegal activities as much as you want, uh, but they still go on. And I think that we, what we need is more people like, like us, uh, like the people on this, on this call that are taken seriously. I mean, <clears throat> you know, as strange as it is, we are the true patriots. I mean, we are the people that are uh, standing up for what our country is supposed to be about, standing up for the rule of law. I mean, you know, you look at all the stuff that uh, Trump does, all the laws that he's violated, and somehow or other, uh, at least so far, he's gotten away from it. Uh, has, he's gotten away with it. You know, hopefully this last absurd thing that he did in terms of trying to force the Georgia Secretary of State to manufacture votes, uh, hopefully that was so far over the line that that even even he's going to get uh, convicted for it. Uh, but that's not that's kind of off the topic from from Julian. Uh, you know, yeah, it was an incredible uh, you know victory today that uh, this judge that we all thought was gonna uh, rule against him ruled. Uh, ruled in his favor to uh, to keep him from being extradited to the U.S. So it was, you know, it was a benefit for for the humanitarian aspects of Julian, but it was a loss for freedom of the press. Uh, the judge in London, uh, <clears throat> you know, essentially said. Uh, you know, all that the government had charged him with was uh, was proper. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I've always felt like what's gone on with Julian is that he was using, uh, you know, this newfangled thing, the Internet to to publish stories. And that got the authorities 
really concerned because you know you know they're kind of they're a bunch of old old white guys a little like me and uh you know this newfangled internet they're really scared of it and uh so they didn't you know they don't treat it as as they would a newspaper um and essentially that's what happened you know with with obama he obama looked into indicting assange but said he couldn't because of the so-called new york times problem that if you indict assange you have to indict every news media that deals in leaks i mean that's that's the way any major story gets broken is is through leaks and you know if we if we say that uh it's illegal for wikileaks to publish information we're essentially saying that there is no freedom of the press oh. and without freedom of the press there is no democracy so you know if we want to keep it a democracy we got to defend freedom of the press we got to defend julian and it's really really good to be on the show with you guys who are working to do that the guys and i love doing the podcast being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe and anyone else you think it might affect please take a moment and share this with them our podcast is supported in a few different ways first there's patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and i pay for some of the podcast's expenses those who contribute ten dollars a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer helping keep you our listeners stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style... You can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
we have to hold the media accountable as well. Like you said, like the, he was sad that nobody paid attention because we stopped talking about it. We gave it its time in the press. And then we said, okay, forget it. Let's keep moving. And the same thing is happening. Like you brought up the Raff, the Raffenberger call and I, I, the fact that we even have to talk about the fact that he tried to do this or the fact that, you know, they want to charge with the son with, they want to charge Assange with all this is too late. Like it's not too late, but like, that is the problem. Like, it's not like there's some magical line where, oh, if we cross this line, then that's the thing that's going to get people to pay attention and get like, it's an incremental thing. What can we get away with? They're getting away with stuff more and more and more. And we, take it and we don't push back and so they say okay well what else can we push on right and like power is always going to take more power and the only way we can do that we can stop that is by exposing it and turning it on its face and saying this is not for you this is not for you regular people this is for the establishment Kagan, yeah. you're you're yeah. absolutely right and if you look at it in terms of what's happened to WikiLeaks and what's happened to Julian Assange, um, it, it's almost like the Obama administration not prosecuting was the head fake mm -hmm. because so many things happened to WikiLeaks and to Julian Assange during that time, as well as the continuation of the WikiLeaks grand jury. That didn't get shut down until March of this year. Uh, the commutation, not the pardon of Chelsea Manning, leaving the door open for her to be reincarcerated, which she was not once, but twice. Um, the, paving the way for... Uh, bringing back i don't know i guess bringing back prosecuting whistleblowers into fashion which obama did on a grand scale that trump has ran with because nobody raised hell about it yeah trump prosecuted more whistleblowers in four years than obama did in eight and obama had prosecuted more whistleblowers than all previous presidents in a modern era so, I mean, this is the the kind of, you know, one hand washes the other sort of approach to um, really, I, I don't know, well-mannered versus ill-mannered totalitarianism masquerading uh, as two different disparate parties. This is, yeah, this is exactly why we need it. If anything that this administration has shown us is that we can do like the executive branch can do a lot more than people think it can or and that if we don't hold people accountable for what's happening it's just gonna get worse and like i don't understand why people don't get that like the door is open and it was cracked but now it's opening and it keeps opening unless we do something to call people out and to really just hammer them to be like why you know ask the basic fucking questions of is what you're doing effective? Uh, is this actually making things better? You know, like the basic stuff that we want to know and that we assume our government is doing. Like, we can't make assumptions anymore. We have to just call people out. So I'm going to make an assumption here real quick and assume that Ben and I don't travel in the same social circles. 
uh and, and and you know no no judgment but i i um i was curious ben as to what the uh how hard it is to talk about julian assange to people who are um i don't know better better off or i don't know like i mean are are your friends more inclined to be in, in the neoliberal bubble like i know like even my friend ray mcgovern who he just stole my fucking question man professionals for sanity he has a difficult time talking about julian assange in his own immediate circle of friends because they're all retired national security professionals who still toe the company line to certain degrees, especially when it comes to red team, blue team politics. Well, you know, I don't really know if our social circles are all that different, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked with Julian about Julian Assange to, to a bunch of my friends and, uh, you know, it seems like for most of them, uh, well, I wouldn't say for most of them. Maybe, maybe for half of them, you know, they just don't think it's a it's a big thing. Uh, maybe for uh, a quarter of them, they're they're also pretty much up in arms about it. And you know, I think there's a quarter of them that uh, that that feel like Julian. Uh, you know, released some information, uh, you know, while Hillary was running for president that, uh, you know, that that worked against her and and therefore they're they're kind of down on uh, on Assange for that. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, I think that we're confronted with outrage fatigue. I mean, there's so many outrages that are happening uh, that, you know, people can't uh, can't can't follow them all and they can't they certainly can't focus on them all. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what you do about that. I mean, I you know, I got my hands full, you know, I mean, I'm trying to work on the military industrial congressional complex. I'm trying to work on qualified immunity, racism. <laughs> And Assange, and you know, I mean, that's uh, you know, that's a full time job. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, happily, I have the time for that to be a full time job. But uh, I mean, that that's only that's only a small little bit of the outrages that are going on. Hey, Ben. My name is Jesse, by the way. Nice to meet you. And uh, I like your vegan ice cream very much. Thank you. Throw that in there. (laughs) But I'm curious if as somebody who's, I don't want to call you a celebrity because I feel like that would be an insult because who wants to be called a celebrity nowadays, but as somebody who's well known, who's, who's um, people are very familiar with you and, and the, and the ice cream you've produced, et cetera. Do you ever get any pushback from people when you express your uh, solidarity with Assange? People who say, you know, this, the same things they kind of say about um, Sean Penn, for example, like, oh, well, you, you know, 
you have money and you have time and you have the luxury to do this and you're just uh you're really just posing you know and trying to proselytize through your posing do you ever get any pushback like that uh not much i mean okay. that's, uh that's you know good. mostly mostly people are appreciative you know there's there's sometimes when uh you know i'll be doing stuff about uh economic justice you know i i was at uh an occupy wall street demonstration and and some people were saying you know what are what are you why are you here you know i mean you're part of the one percent uh you know what what is that you know how, how come you're here <laughs> and you know i said you know i i believe in justice you know i believe in fairness and equality you know what it's it's just so amazing to me that our culture has gotten to the state where people don't expect people are not expected to do things that are not in their own narrow self-interest that what you're doing something because it helps somebody else you know oh that's you know you must there must be something something in it for you uh and you know i mean justice i mean that you know i mean justice is better than a scoop of cherry garcia as far as i'm concerned <laughs> you know so there is something in it for me but that's what's in it for me and that's saying something i'll say uh for sure so um ben i know you may have you know things to hop off and do so we don't you know want to hold your time any longer but um uh, you're of course welcome to stay on as long as you want listen to our pontificating but uh i was hoping maybe just you know kind of uh as a close on your sort of portion you know you mentioned that you work in a variety of you know different causes and, and activism and i'm part of some of that right with the military industrial complex and eisenhower media which you mentioned qualified immunity it's hard to keep up i mean you're involved in a lot would you be able to kind of maybe just give like a quick bit on how they're how they're a little connected though you know, I mean, it, there's the fatigue, but, you know, do you see some of these things that you work on as connected, Assange, with these other things? Well, I, I mean, it, it really is interesting how, how they tend to get more and more connected. I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but, uh, I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, I've been working on this issue of qualified immunity that essentially you know, cops uh, get off scot-free when they brutalize uh, black people. And, uh, you know, also when they brutalize white people, it's just that they seem to brutalize black people more. But, uh, and, 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 and then I was working with uh, Danny on uh, the military industrial congressional complex. And he, he, brought to my attention this book uh, written by Eric Edstrom, a, a former um, what member of the armed forces. And, and he, he went to West Point and the, and the book was talking about how the training at West Point was essentially dehumanizing him as a person and, and dehumanizing the, the enemy. And so that you could kill without compunction and and then I saw some bit about how, uh, you know, the police are encouraging former military 
to become policemen. They're incentivized. And, uh, and then I saw some other thing that Danny showed me uh, about this warrior training that uh, police departments are participating in, where they're being taught to view their job as a military uh, soldier, uh, thinking of the enemy and holding your ground and and all that stuff. And, and that's why police, I think, end up acting the way they act, because we're essentially training them to be warriors. Um, so, yeah, that that kind of came around a few times. But, yeah, I do have to go. Uh, I really appreciate the time. And it's really good to to meet the rest of the guys on the call and dear woman person on the call. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Misty, right. yes, yes. Take well, care. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Appreciate Take it. Take care, Ben. You bet. Thanks, ben. Bye -bye. Uh, so, um, while, while Ben was, uh, was kind of, you know, kind of going through some of these connections and, uh, I mean, it, I really like the questions from, from Jesse and Steve. I mean, because it, it, it's interesting, uh, the different kinds of work, right. Depending on who your audience is, depending on what your experience is. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Ben saying he probably doesn't run in very different circles. They probably, some of them might be different financial circles, but like the, uh, he always jokes about the, uh, the other few, right? Like almost like the other unicorns uh, who are sort of, uh, you know, wealthy and yet very active, you know, social justice stuff. And then Vince came on the call, right? Vincent, uh, who is coming out of the grassroots, right? And I wanted to give him an opportunity to kind of introduce himself and what, you know, the same way we all did, um, why, why this matters from, from our different platforms, perspectives and experiences. Um, and just for the, you know, he's going to come on the, the show for a separate interview real soon, actually one of the, probably the first in the new year that we're going to be doing, but just for background people who don't know him, uh, he was, uh, you know, in the Marine Corps from 2002, to 2006, uh, after his second time in Iraq, uh, he actually refused orders for a third deployment. Uh, joins Iraq veterans against the war. I mean, at the ground level, right? But when I was still thinking that Bush might be okay, all right? I mean, just to give you an idea of like ahead of the curve. Um, and then in 2008, he was testifying at Congress about rules of engagement, torture, war crimes. Uh, he's been, you know, featured in documentaries and uh, is the co-founder of uh, Park Media or Political Arts Root Culture. Uh, has, you know, has his show that I had the privilege to be on. And, uh, Vincent, I was just hoping you can kind of jump in and really thanks for coming on no notice, basically, and joining. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm sure everyone's already mentioned the, the good news, of course, uh, is that Julian will not be sent to the United States for the time being. Of course, every other thing the judge said justified the U.S. position and was absolutely horrific and still poses a threat to free speech and all sorts of things. So a little good with a lot of bad, which is sort of the, the way that life has been lately. So uh, why does this matter to me? I think it should matter to any veteran. I think it should matter to any person. Uh, I think particularly as a veteran, uh, what I found interesting is that a lot of the people who are some of Julian and, and Snowden and Manning's most ardent supporters are actually former military members. Now, some of their most, um, oh, I see someone up there pointing to themselves. Well, what is your name, brother? Kagan? Or Keegan? Yeah. Okay, right on. Nice to meet you. 
So is every is everybody on the call here a veteran as well? No, I'm not. No, uh, actually, if you guys just want to go like around and give like the two seconds, um, just kind of introduce each other. I'm Jesse, yeah. and uh, I actually co-host a, a podcast with uh, Misty, who's on this call. I don't see their window okay, right open on. right now, but um, yeah, and Danny's been on our show twice, and uh, he and I have become fast friends, so uh, yeah, we're homies, and he invited me on today, and that's why I'm here. Right <laughs> yeah, um, I'm Andrew with Action for Assange. Um, we're the the U.S. resistance to the WikiLeaks prosecution. So I, I'm Steve. I am uh, the reluctant national organizer for action for Assange. Um, I also host uh, a show with these guys called the Free Assange Vigil, and I have another show called Slow News Day. Um, and uh, I have uh, a, a pretty thorough background in grassroots activism and journalism and uh just uh i i've had a pretty weird life bro so um you're in good company so, so, and because yeah. of that because of that because i've been in like far too many weird situations i i find that i am relatable and i can relate to most people you know so right on yeah i'm looking forward to this conversation yeah. and i'm stoked that ben cohen stopped by danny i forgot that you had said that that was gonna be a thing that was wild i've never talked to an ice cream magnate before <laughs> well nino turner calls him the minister of ice cream which uh i, I really wish I, I would like to be the minister of anything you know i always <laughs> wanted to be the fuhrer but then i was like that's tainted but anyway <laughs> but uh maybe don't yeah, but, go, hey, but Vince, go ahead. Uh, yeah, okay, so anyway, oh, sorry, Missy, Missy. Uh, it's all right, dude. It's a fucking sausage squad, and I'm the only chick here, and so I'm just going to sit here. Um, he's a dude chick yeah, anyway. Yeah, Steve <laughs> says I'm I'm him with lady bits, so. Well, I got Le I got Leia over here, our, our resident pups, so it's not a totally. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Solo well, there's other girls guys. in the house, but I'm like the only one on the show. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I'm Missy. Jesse already kind of introduced me. Uh, I co-host a show with him called Facts on the Ground. I also co-host, like they also already introduced me, uh, the Action for Assange Vigils. I pretty much didn't even need to say anything because somebody uh, like already introduced both of my things. So, you know, I'll just shut up now. I was just about to tell you to shut up. I'm Henry. I'm uh, one of Danny's uh, co-hosts on Fortress on a Hill. Hi, yeah, Vince. I'm Kagan. I'm one of uh, the co-hosts here. I also I was in the intelligence community. I worked in the Navy at NSA Georgia from 2009 to 2013. So, uh, working all the different missions in uh, North Africa and the Middle East, so like Libya, Somalia, Yemen, the stuff that we weren't talking about much back then, but now is very much in the news. Um, and for me, like this is important because I was I like I've talked about this before, but I was one of those people who, like, I didn't know what to think in the beginning when I was reading about Manning's charges and everything. And then Snowden happened during my time at the NSA. And, like, so everyone was asking me my opinion and stuff. And, I mean, really for me, when I got to see the trial transcripts of what Manning said of, like, why she did what she did, it really resonated with me. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, 
And I had to think about it from my perspective, doing my job that I did every day and be like, there's a lot of shit that I see that I don't like. I don't like the mission that I'm doing. I don't think it's necessary. I think we're causing more damage than we're helping. And like, I really had to sit there and think about like, what if that was me? Like, what if I saw something that I was like, oh shit, I need to tell somebody. And literally every single person is telling me not to and forcing me not to. And there's no, like Manning had no support from her leadership whatsoever, like in her shop, in any capacity. And like, I just, I had to think about it from that way of like, fuck, if I was in that position, would I have been able to do that? And I don't know if I would. So like to, to nobody who leaks anything, especially coming from the intelligence community, like nobody knows more the punishment of what is going to happen because it gets drilled into your head every six months, every time you have to go through the FISA training, every time you have to go through the different trainings that we have to about maintaining your clearance or maintaining your readings, like that's shit that everybody knows. And so to know all that and still have the courage to blow the whistle when you know you have no backup and your whole life is blowing up. Like you have to, you have to believe deep down that you know what you're doing is right. And yeah, I mean, I, I have to absolutely respect them for that. Oh, I completely agree. I think it's on all of us, those of us who are not in that position to probably do two things. One would be effectively to organize within institutions of power. And the other would be to set up the kind of support networks and organizations on the outside that can actually support people when they make this move. Um, uh, over the years, I mean, I, it's hard to put into words how much I respect uh, whistleblowers, people who take uh, a stance that not only puts their lives at risk, but really damages the lives of people around them and what, as well, including people's family members and their community and their friends. Um, what I have seen over the years, however, is people do that and then be catapulted into a really catastrophic situation where they sometimes don't come out of it. Um, you know, we all know, I'm sure activists and veterans and whistleblowers and others who uh, have taken their own lives after, you know, coming out and speaking out about issues or coming out publicly. And I believe the only way that we can really support them is by developing institutions and organizations that have the capacity to do so. And I think there's a real question about how much time we should be spending within the armed services uh, organizing actively organizing. Um, and this to me gets back to sort of an analysis of power. Like if we're looking at history, you know, people, uh, I don't know, this might be going off a little bit to the side, but you, as an organizer, I'm always thinking about power. So who has power? What are the structures of power? What is the landscape? Um, and it seems very clear that if we don't control or have influence over at least uh, portions of the military or portions of the state apparatus, police forces, and so forth. I have a hard time believing uh, that progressive left, even libertarian, other folks will be able to develop the kind of institutions that could combat that kind of power. Um, and that means really long-term down and dirty organizing work. Like it's not going to be overnight that we organize military units, but should people be sort of implanting themselves in those uh, institutions now? Yeah, I believe that. It's sort of like uh, the union movement in the United States. You know, people are like, oh, unions are all fucked up. I hope someday, I hope we can cuss on here, but they're like, I hope someday, um, you know, unions will get their shit together. Working class people can 
you know, organize at that, build that kind of class power. But when that stuff happened in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, it was literally uh, anarchists, communists, and socialists who were going into the unions with like institutional support and then organizing radical unions to go on strike, to become more militant. Um, these kinds of institutions and structures, I don't think are just going to happen on their own. You know, that kind of movement is going to have to be like an intentional effort. And it's something that people shouldn't do on their own. So in other words, we have local organizers who are thinking, you know, what is the most strategic area of the regional economy here in Northwest Indiana? What would be the most strategic industries to organize within? Um, That takes more than one person to get into that industry and start organizing. You know, that's something that people have to do with others. That's something people have to do with a certain amount of confidence and training um, and support from outside groups, you know, in case they run into trouble, in case they get fired, uh, which means their family no longer has a home to live in and all sorts of things. But I think that's the kind of like organizing dynamics or the the seriousness with which we should take our organizing efforts. And that's to really survey uh, the landscape of power, determine which are the most strategic uh, institutions to organize within, and then to put all of our efforts into doing that. Let me just let me just ask you, uh, because the assumption is that these institutions need to be there, or that we need them to somehow keep us safe, or in line, or organize us. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that, um, because you mentioned people entering these institutions to sort of, for lack of a better word, subvert them. But what do you think about these institutions as a whole? Do we need them? Do we need them to lord over us and tell us how we should live supposedly good lives? Do we need them? Um, what, What do you mean by that? Well, do we need police, for example? Do we need a a standing military or I, I mean, we certainly don't need a standing military. That's the size of the U S military now, but <laughs> I'm just putting this out there as a, I got you. a conceptual question that I think, you know, it's a conversation that we should all, we should all have, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, there's this talk with, um, uh, forcing the vote, which I am not against, by any means, but you're working within a system that's already corrupted. And once you enter a corrupt system, you're going to get corrupted. You're not ever going to have a chance to change it. And I think history is more than borne that out. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on institutions like police and the military, and if we actually need them. And if, if reform, as they say, is possible with these institutions. Well, institutions are constantly being reformed. I mean, if anything, the neoliberal project has probably been a revolutionary project. Um, They've been able to radically transform institutions and culture in the United States. I mean, so the last 45 years has been a revolution in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. Um, As far as reforms are concerned, yeah, I think meaningful reforms is how you actually build power. So in other words, if you're telling people, um, hey, step A is we're going to get rid of the police and then step B is the revolution. Um, I don't think you're going to get a ton of people to sign on, but I do think if you can move toward that as being the ideal, then sure. I mean, if we set up what the ultimate vision is, then everything we do, you know, short-term 
strategies, short-term objectives that we achieve should be moving toward that vision. But I think the problem that I've seen is that sort of activists start with the vision um, and then assume that the next step is going to be uh, coming up with tactics that will sort of portray that we're against this system instead of showing people that, yeah, these institutions are very powerful. They're with us for the time being. Um, we should move towards something better. And I think in order to get there, people have to see some kind of progress. And that's where I think we've ran into serious difficulty in the United States where people will say things like, or like force to vote is a great example. Um, again, going back in history, when there were significant reforms in the United States in the 1960s, 1930s, 1880s, there was a socialist party, there was a communist party, there was a very active militant anarchist base of people. Uh, there were organized militant labor unions. There was a Democratic Party that wasn't completely hostage to big business interests, um, still a hostage, still a capitalist party, still an imperialist party, all of those things, but a much different sort of posture than we have today. So when people think about making change today, whether it's force the vote, Black Lives Matter, environmental activism, until we build big, powerful institutions that are capable of wielding power, meaning shutting down commerce, not just like symbolic protests in the streets or tearing down statues or smashing up store windows or even setting police precincts on fire, what actually has leverage over the political system? How do you disrupt the political economy? Um, that's shutting down business. And in order to shut down business, you have to have workers organized. Um, so, you know, when I'm thinking like in hindsight during the anti-war movement under the Bush years and the Obama years, it was just like one big protest after the next. And people mm -hmm. would come back from those protests and be like, well, maybe next time we'll get people arrested and that will be the thing that changes it. Or next time we'll take even more militant steps. Thinking more about tactics than thinking about strategy when in reality, the better bet would have been to double down our organizing resources within the military um, and then also organize workers in strategic sectors within the military industrial complex. So, you know, which workers are actually developing weapons and munitions and components for uh, airplanes and tanks and helicopters and all the rest. Organizing at those workplaces uh, would probably yield much better benefits than just getting like-minded people together for a street corner protest. Well, like in the 60s, so, like people yeah. were pissed off about the fact that like the Democrats had labor on their side. So, I mean, for not entirely, but for the most part, they were afraid of labor. So they realized they had to be on their side. We don't have that. The people calling for a general strike, I would love to have a general strike. Fuck Amazon, fuck all these people. But yes. like, what are they gonna do, right? They don't have the, they don't have the support. They're just like, shit, I need to make money because my kids are hungry. Yeah. Well, you know, the idea of a general that. strike is really, it. it's a concrete, concept but it's a vapid practice yeah. um and the thing that i kind of came to the realization to this week um especially with working alongside of jackson hinkle that led the force to vote protests um because action for assange actually coordinated with them um and the scheduling of when their protests were versus when ours were and all those kinds of things and you don't build a general strike by saying everyone needs to just stop working um, what you do is you build it on single issue specific causes, but in a collective manner. So like you would focus on free speech, you would focus on gun rights, you would focus on healthcare, um, and all these different individual topics with the people leading them, so to speak, or the people that would speak for them, 
organizing within themselves as well. So that way, when someone comes to D.C. for four days, they can have a protest from nine o'clock till 11 and then another one from noon until two and then another one and you showcase each of these issues to the other groups so you pull medicare for all if that's your thing in with free assange so that way when one of them gets broadcast to the internet all of them get broadcast to the internet like i'm actually super disappointed in myself that i couldn't find a way to get force the vote stop the steal and free assange all within protests together because Stop the Steal is coming to D.C. very shortly. Um, but Jesse also had asked another question about are the institutions that we see necessary? And I think that what we should try to do is decouple institutions from war. I think having the same institution that educates our children be responsible for waging war in other countries is foolish. Um, and to the point with force the vote and Medicare for all, I don't want to give health care to the same institution responsible for war because then all they're going to do is put people into zombie state, right? They're going to medicate them the way the VA does now with veterans instead of treating the issues that they face. So if we're able to not even demand of our government to give us health care, but if we as people can move it to a just as an example, like the National Nurses Union, and completely decouple it from the institution of monopolized violence, you can create a dramatically different system and then begin examining the monopoly, the monopoly on violence and how it is dictated to society. Yeah, I think uh, as in, I mean, I'm not a libertarian. So from in terms of like, combating the libertarian line yes if you can show me a system somewhere in the world that can easily provide health care to 350 million people uh without a state apparatus i'm all for it i mean i in other words like yes i agree with a lot of my friends who you know who are anarchists and libertarians who are looking for alternatives to the state i think that becomes very complex you know in a world of whatever it is 7.8 billion people and 350 million people here if people can show small scales exam small scale examples of that being successful sure um but most of the organizations that are fighting for medicare for all the organizations that laid the groundwork for it to even be an issue so like nnu that's a group i've been working with for 13 years now uh, some of my best friends are with the national nurses united um, you know, the what they're asking for, of course, is for the existing state to implement Medicare for all. So within the fight for Medicare for all, I think there's probably a very small sliver of people who don't expect the state to implement the program if indeed it was passed. Um, but that's, does that mean that people on their own time or people within communities that, you know, for instance, there is a concern if Medicare for all was implemented, if rural communities would have the same kind of access that suburban and urban communities would. So in the meantime, if you had a collective or a mutual aid network of doctors and nurses who could provide some kind of service to rural communities that might not be uh, serviced in the same way under Medicare for all that like urban and suburban communities would, then I think all the better. Um, so for me, it's more of like all of the above instead of taking like an ideological position immediately. Um, and so, yeah, that would be like the easiest way I could answer that. So if, yeah, uh, for the time being, which is funny because I thought I was coming on to talk about Assange, but this is great because we're like talking about political ideology and well, institutions well, it's, and all kinds of it's, stuff, it's which all is great. Related, though. It is all connected. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Because uh, the, 
The problem is the institution that is responsible for guarding speech is also the institution responsible for waging war. Yeah. So, yeah. so you have this system where the people are the people, the government is going out and committing atrocities in our name and then straight not telling us about it and then taking away our right to know about it. Yeah. So trying to decouple those institutions from that war machine to me is such a high precedence that that's, that's why defending the First Amendment is so important. Yes, yeah. and why we shouldn't, shouldn't uh, rely on the government to do that, that we absolutely need citizens and individuals, uh, collective bodies of people, no doubt about it. Is that decoupling possible, though? Yeah. Do you think it's possible to so, decouple the, inst the institutions from the, the war machine? Um. It requires a, a re redesign uh, of the machine. It, it does. Like currently, we have a, a machine that's designed to more or less kill 99% of us. And our solution to fixing this machine is every two years, we try to slap a couple of shiny new parts on it. Uh, and we kind of think that that's how we're going to fix this problem when under any normal circumstance, we would never prolong the life of a machine designed to kill us. But um, I, I, at this point, Jesse, can you decouple from? No, not, not in any way that not in any way legislatively not in any way that you could enforce within the current mechanisms do you know what i mean like i i want i believe in my heart of hearts that that could absolutely be done that we could have institutions that provided for the common good that weren't directly tied to a, a, an empirical war machine. Mm -hmm. I, I do, but I don't think that there's given, given the amount of time that the consensus says we have left on the planet. No, not within the current framework uh, of of the machinery that we have. No, I don't think so. So uh, Fair enough. I'm actually going to do the thing that I never do and uh, and kind of, you know, pull us, uh, you know, kind of wrap up a bit. But with um, a little bit of comments from everybody on the way out, I, I actually have one more question for, for Vince specifically that I think will be an interesting kind of, you know, pivot towards the, you know, everyone giving their final thoughts on, on this kind of thing. We're at, uh, we're at two hours. I, I have been known to just stay up until four in the morning on the road, Carlo Mark style, sitting on the bed, real talk about souls, you know? Um, but I, at the same time, I'm sure folks have things to do. And you guys have been up since four in the morning live streaming, right? Uh, those of you in DC. At midnight, actually, I went to the British embassy with a contingent of other crazy people and shouted down the British on a megaphone to the police tried to take it and then continued shouting once they took the megaphone. 
So I, I, I very much wish I was there. Uh, oh man, we get we we did you shout trouble. in a British accent. The good kind of trouble. Did like you shout in a British I, accent? No, one of my, one I was of my favorite, a really bad accent. <laughs> one of my favorite photos is of uh, like a bunch of Irish American activists in 1981 burning like the Union Jack after Bobby Sands died and starved himself in the hunger strike. You know, so if, if I could be angry at the British, like my dead like ancestors uh, of my people, and in this case, I mean. <laughs> vaguely irish not urban white trash uh are are, are involved I'm a big <laughs> fan of that so i'll stop stealing the mic from steve but one last thing with our group photo we actually did fuck the british as the thing that we said when we took the picture so it was <laughs> that's awesome yeah so um so i want to i want to ask vince one one more question and then i think what we'll do is we'll go uh around the horn basically in reverse order we did last time right so so vince can kind of answer my question then also just tack on like his final thoughts on you know, Assange, what I'm looking for really is, you know, you know, final analysis, ramifications of the decision and like what now? So, you know, brief couple of minutes. Um, but what I wanted to ask uh, Vince about is Vince, I think it was you told me the story um, about early IVAW activism uh, trying to reach out to John Kerry and, you know, the Democratic candidate for president in 04, who had been big and, you know, like winter soldier, you know, involved with VVAW and, and he's just not having it, right? Like he's, he's just not, he don't want to get involved, probably afraid he'd get swift voted. Oh, sorry, John, they're gonna swift vote you anyway, they're Republicans, right? Um, so with that in line, I mean, maybe you could just maybe comment on that as it potentially could relate to Assange, because I think what I'm asking you is, um, you know, it's tough to make predictions, but what do you see as the prospects for, an, an incoming Biden administration, not just for Assange-related issues, but just general press freedom and whistleblower protection. I mean, this is the guy, right, Biden, who in December of 2010 said that he's a high-tech terrorist, right, about Assange. Right. So I don't, know, I don't know if you see any kind of connection there. Um, I, I did when you came on, and I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. My, I mean, my first inclination when I'm hearing what you're saying is to say that we absolutely cannot rely on anyone in power to help uh, anyone in these situations. And the only way we can even assume that they would is if we create such a political crisis here in the United States that they're absolutely forced to. In other words, there's some internal reports that have come out that have said that Biden was hoping uh, that the British would, in fact, keep Julian in the UK because he didn't want to deal with the political situation in the United States. Well, that's on us. I mean, it's on us to ensure uh, that if the Biden administration pushes for Assange's extradition, that he knows that it will be a political uh, firestorm uh, in the United States. And so if people create chaos in the United States, and that might make the Biden administration think twice about doing it. And again, I think it's one of the most important um, issues of our time, uh, free speech on all levels, everywhere. I'm sort of a free speech absolutist. So I got called that the other day. I don't even think that's a like genuine philosophical term that somebody that, told me. Can, it, yeah. Can we, I'm sorry, but can, can we talk about that for a moment? Because that really makes as much sense as an asshole on an elbow. It's just one of those phrases that I, I can't. Have you been called that before? I've been called a free speech. Oh um, yeah. yeah I've been that's called what I just a, got called two days ago. Yeah. I've been called a free speech absolutist. I've been called a free speech extremist. Right. I've been none of, called. None of, none uh, of those terms make any sense. They're just redundancies. Yeah. With exaggeration added onto them. Somebody called me a free speech Nazi. 
And I was like, well, we do. We live in a fucking cartoon, don't we? <laughs> we do. That's just how that works. I'm, I'm sorry, brother. I no, no, know. it's all good. I'm glad that you, I mean, obviously this is like a propaganda talking point that they're using against people who are sticking up for whistleblowers and others, journalists and people. I mean, look, it's the, one of the most important uh, institutions in our country. If you can't have a functioning society without a free press, and I think it's on all of us to create a political crisis for the Biden administration. Uh, so he knows that if indeed they push for Assange's extradition or if they go after uh, future whistleblowers and journalists, that there's going to be hell to pay. And I think that's all we can do in the positions that we're in today. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, I, I like terms like I like being called things like free speech, absolutist or extremist or maybe I mean, Nazi is a tough one. It's a tough one to swallow. But uh, I, I think it's an important an important point. And there are just certain things that you, you, you just don't mess with. Right. And I think that's what you're kind of raising. Right. Um, so. We, we've got this decision today. We know that it's uh, it's good that he's not coming, right? It's 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 good that he's not being extradited now. It's not over, you know. The the judge didn't really didn't engage with or accept any of the really important like broader arguments. Uh, and yet, you know, I think this probably was a surprise, right? I mean, Steve, you were saying that earlier. I mean, you guys were kind of planning to like wake up and protest and be be sad. I mean, we're we're so used to losses. Right. And so this isn't like a win win, but 30 seconds from fighting each other, we were so upset. Oh my God. Yeah. No other expression for our anger than each other. If, uh, and I recommend you do, we, we should actually probably clip it out too, because I've seen people uh, all over Twitter today, like talking about, you have to watch this particular moment where we're, uh, uh, reading what the judge is saying and it's the first part of her describing her decision and it's her agreeing with every single one of those like just absolutely saturated in non-reality complete bullshit lines of attack that the prosecution used during this case and she's, you know, justifying things that had been disproven in her own courtroom just a couple of months ago while she was sitting mere feet away from the individual or the device that was doing the debunking in real time right in front of her, which, again, it made us like it made us think that the decision was written at the exact same time by the exact same individual that wrote the third superseding indictment that uh, he he got hit with right before he went into court uh, this past time in September. Um, shit, where was I? Talking about watching the our live stream and yeah. the reaction. So yeah. we're there. We're we're in that moment. We're pissed, dude, because. <laughs> Beretzer uses some incredibly, oh man, I like what it's, it's not Huxleyan, it's not Orwellian, it's like, it's like Kafka, Kafka (laughs) on bad acid is what it is. Um, But she uses this language to describe Julian's lack of rights 
uh, as a journalist, as a publisher, and a human. Um, and oh my God, we're heated, heated. And Kevin Gastola, big shout out to Kevin Gastola, shadowproof.com, excellent outlet. Kevin, friend of the show. Um, uh, he's puts out a tweet that's like, eh. Hey, wait a minute. That's not horrible. That's not horrible at all. And the next tweet is no extradition. And so I read that. <laughs> Did I read that? Yes. Okay. So here's what here's what happened. We were sitting here and you know, we're all pissed off. I'm like staring at my phone, just like fuming, ready to like punch Andrew. And Steve's reading out these tweets, and Kendra's pissed off, and we're all mad. And so Steve's reading this tweet and it's like bad, 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 bad. And then there's this one tweet that's like kind of okay. And Kendra and I both like kind of snap our heads up, like, what? And then Steve reads the next tweet, which is the no extradition tweet. And I don't think any of us knew we didn't get it the first time. we didn't understand what was happening we were we're exhausted we haven't slept um and so none of that was we couldn't comprehend any of what was happening and we all just sat here for the longest time trying to figure out what the fuck was going on we had no clue what was going on and we still don't actually like we're still all very discombobulated um but yeah that was that was our experience and i highly recommend uh if you guys haven't seen the live stream watching it if for no other reason but watching um, our dear friend, Ali, uh, from the UK. We were live on the ground with the UK team who has worked so hard and they are fearless and they have been um, in the streets constantly fighting for Assange. So huge shout out to them. Um, but yeah, we were uh, on, like she was on our live stream with us and watching her reaction. We, we actually had the pleasure of telling them they, we, they, we, they heard it from us first um, because we were monitoring the live tweets while they were in the streets. So we had the pleasure of telling our dearest friend from the UK, Ali, uh, that there was going to be no extradition and her reaction makes watching that uh, so worth it because it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I definitely recommend folks check that out, and we'll throw um, we'll we'll throw a link in as well, right, Henry, and uh, and kind of have the opportunity for people to do that and just jump on from here if you're watching now or if you're watching later. Um, so uh, Vince has to jump off. He's got another call. Um, he. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on and just like kind of showing the, you know, the connectedness of these issues at the grassroots. And uh, we look forward to having you on Force on Hill to really tell the story. And I, and I want to talk more about that IVAW carry thing and how it connects to Biden. But uh, thanks for coming on. Any, any, anything, any last stuff you want to uh, mention and then maybe plug some work, plug some place people can find you. Sure. I mean, I think right now the most important thing to uh, mention is that, uh, everyone who's been working on this issue for many, many years deserves uh, a round of applause, a pat on the back. I know people, I was in Australia in 2013 working with Assange Solidarity Group's uh, WikiLeaks party when there was a WikiLeaks party. Um, this has been a long time coming for a lot of people, and I know it's not the decision everybody quite wanted, but yeah, I think it, it, people who have been working on this deserve some credit, a lot of credit, because they've been, you know, getting shit on for many, many years on this issue. Uh, and I know that people have, you know, put a lot of work in. So that's like, that's the only thing I'd like to say. I don't really want to plug any of my own stuff, because I think today belongs to the people who have been focused on this issue. So I will uh, talk to y'all 
at some point again, keep up the awesome work and let's keep finding ways to work together and organize. Good to meet you. Good to meet y'all. Thanks. Thanks, All right. Well, uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's go around the horn in the opposite directions. We'll start with Misty and then, you know, we'll kind of, go through everyone on the couch Ladies right first yeah well, right <laughs> since all the since all the since all the white men were basically <laughs> describing you for you and probably you, know, yeah, on the last you boys can shut up now so we'll go misty we'll go through the couch oh, I can do that. Shout out for all of us. jesse kagan henry i don't know and then boom bring down the house oh, just you guys yeah. where 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 are you guys by the way it looks like a champagne room um we're yes in, we're in the champagne room this yes the free lunch <laughs> yes we're in the club <laughs> you're in the what red happens room here stays here jesse okay it's open shut down we found the one club with the champagne room still open in dc we've been posted up here since like that's the epstein Saturday. club right what that's the epstein club yeah yeah yeesh <laughs> That's gross, man. Okay. So anyways, um, uh, Real talk. I yeah, I don't know what you really want me to say. Um, I'm tired and I don't really know what's going on, but I'm Misty Winston. Um, again, uh, you can find me on Twitter at sarcasm stardust. Um, uh, feel free to join me on all of my Twitter, uh, rage filled rants. Those are fun. Um, uh, going after, you know, useless politicians who refuse to speak for Assange. Um, oh, and independent journalists too. That's, that's a good target. Uh, but yeah, so I'm just really excited um, for the little win that we got today. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to get too excited because we're not like Danny said earlier, wins are weird. <laughs> it's really bizarre. I don't really know how to process um, that information. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping maybe after we get some sleep, <laughs> We can uh, try to take this all in and, you know, figure out what it all actually means. Um, by far, the fight isn't over, though. Like, this is, I mean, really just the beginning of a whole other battle. I mean, we may have saved Julian, but, you know, the First Amendment is very much still under attack and very much at risk. So, you know, this is really just, you know, it's good to take today and, like, just kind of celebrate um, while we can. Because, again, the wins are so rare. So, um, hopefully, we can use this little boost of morale to, you know, kind of fuel the fight um you know moving forward but this is good like this has been a good day i wasn't expecting it to be a good day so i'm very pleasantly surprised um <laughs> we've all been very out of it and like off today because we all like Dan i think danny said earlier we very much expected to wake up today and um it be just a real shit day um and so while it wasn't all good news the good news that we did get um has really done wonders for at least my morale i won't speak for everybody but um you know i've definitely Definitely got like a second wind of energy um and like i'm ready to you know go back to battle so um thank you danny for having us on thank you for um talking about this as much as you do um it doesn't happen uh as often as it should in independent media so we appreciate you more than you know um you know thanks for coming on you know, jesse and i's show um and always being receptive to talking to people and um you know we just appreciate all the work that you do so yeah thanks for having us on Oh, thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure. So uh, I'm Steve Poikinen. Um, I, I co-host the Free Assange Vigils, and look, I I know this is gonna come. Or is, we're live streaming right now. Hopefully, there are people watching this and, and who currently watch Fortress on a Hill 
that also watch our shows and maybe helped uh help donate to get us to dc uh and, and i just really i mean I, I can't thank the people who chipped in and helped make this possible enough the just tremendous we uh we have a a highly suppressed program over there with the free assange vigils julian assange's name is in the title you know it's in the name of the show it's in the name of every episode of the show. We're we're siloed, you know, and, and for us to be able to successfully crowdfund three different times inside of a year to get, you know, several of us to Washington, D.C. to hold up to a month's worth of events. With a, you know, very, you know, relative by YouTube standards, relatively small audience has just been phenomenal. And we really do. We have the, uh, we have the best and the best looking audience in YouTube. We, we do. Um, I've met a couple of them, man. I, that's not me blowing smoke anymore. That's a fair and accurate statement. But that is. Um, I have another show called Slow News Day. Um, uh, you should uh, you should definitely check that out, and you should do so on the Rockfin. Um, the the Rockfin is where I'm going to be when YouTube arbitrarily removes my channel, um, which I am amazed when I wake up and still have one. Um, it, it is. I, I, they're just they're content right now with you know, trying to frustrate me enough to make me leave, but that's not how that's going to work. Um, <laughs> but uh, Rockfin is fantastic. Uh, you, yeah, go go make your free account. Um, if you'd like to, you can endorse the channel, uh, and then you get access to everybody's premium content for endorsing Slow News Day for ten bucks a month. It's like a Netflix for content creators. Um, it's wonderful. I'm not going to take up too much more time. I do want to say that um, I'm going to echo what Misty said in that the fight continues. We had a win today. We need to recognize that we had a win today. We need to consciously acknowledge how much worse off it could have been in this moment. Mm -hmm. We need to hug the people who we've been uh, uh, who we've been relying on for sanity for the last several months, if not last several years, um, and, and and gear up and ready to you know get going at it. Yeah. Thanks, um, my name is Andrew Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Zygman. Um Steve has a Twitter too. Slow Newsday Show. I have a website too. And a website, Slow Newsday website. Slownewsdayshow.com. Um, so you can follow us on Twitter at action underscore the number four Assange. Um, but the thing I want to leave people with, and it's something I just want to reiterate from what I had mentioned earlier. Um, find whatever the hell it is you care about. It doesn't matter how big or small it seems. If it is the issue that fucking makes you passionate, find it and just ride it until it literally gets you killed. 
because that's the only way that we're going to accomplish anything with principles is by taking a principled stance as far as it can take us until we win or die. Um, so thank you. Thank you guys for having us on. Thank you for introducing us to Vincent Ben. That was fucking awesome. So I, I just appreciate the, the platform. Well, thanks so much for coming, especially after all you guys have been through over there. I mean, being at the embassy at midnight, starting the live stream at 4 a.m., it looks like you probably just finished dancing for dollars. I mean, there's a lot of things that have been <laughs> happening in that room and in that city. Is, and is Chris, is Chris Rock there? Uh, I hope so. So, uh, but no, but thanks so much for doing this. Uh, all right, Jesse, Kagan, Henry, boom, let's do it in that order. I'm in charge. I'm in charge of things again. <laughs> used to be hundreds of soldiers, now it's been huge. And I will abuse it anyway. My smallest amount of power. So, first off, Danny, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure uh, to chat with you and your co-hosts, and it's always a pleasure to chat when you're on our show. And I would just say that uh, I would really just echo what's what's already been said by Misty and Steve and Andrew. I don't think I could say it any better than them. Um, perhaps the only thing that I would add is that this sort of caveat I brought up toward the beginning of the conversation where essentially the suicide risk was solely used as the reason to not extradite Assange. And I think we should be watchful about that coming back to be used against him, uh, as in he's mentally ill or crazy or whatever they decide to say. So I totally agree today that, that today is a victory, um, but we still need to be watchful because as Andrew, Stephen, Misty have said, it's not over yet. And we just got to keep doing what we've been doing and putting the pressure on, I think, a lot of the pressure that's been put on the persecution of Assange has had a lot to do with what happened today. I think, I think these officials are scared, even though they still wield power. I think they are scared and maybe I'm being naive or idealistic in saying that, but I do think things are headed in the right direction and uh, hopefully Julian can be home with his family soon absolutely yeah i mean it's it, it's a great point I, and i think we're gonna have to, next time that i do uh you know facts on the ground which i presume that we'll, we will just continue to do occasionally uh, i'd like to run down that line of like the state's end game and stuff with the mental health and all, all those things that's the interesting point uh kagan give us the uh Give us the shutout for the first time since 1969 Navy uh, version of uh, of things. See that? See that? We all are allowed guilty pleasures, even martial and militaristic ones, I say. <laughs> well, that was a good day. Um, thank you guys for coming on. I'm so glad that we had this range of perspectives and uh, a really full rounded view of what is going on. To me, the number one thing that we should be caring about is like, or our political spectrum is very small and we know that it's very far on the right. But the thing that everybody can agree on should is that our government 
should be transparent as much as they can. And like this case to me, it, that's what that that's what it's about. Like it's not about one man and his decisions and blah blah blah. It's about transparency. Does our governments trust us to give us the truth about what what is done in our name? And I don't think that they do. They clearly don't. And we need to call them out on that. Left, right, doesn't matter what, like, real left, you know? Like, it doesn't matter what part of the spectrum you're on. The bottom line is our government should be upfront with us. And when we ask for things on information, as long as it doesn't really compromise national security, meaning hurt people and institutions, or not institutions, but people, then we should all be for it. And anybody who is pushing back against that is is not going to further that cause. So that's that's just where I try to stand. It's like, if we want to have a free society, we need to have a transparent government. And I love that all of y'all have done the work. I've uh, been doing my day job too much of like trying to help uh, homeless veterans stay off the street and stay in housing. But um, I do try to do... Thank I you for doing do that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, that's important. That's important work. I, I I often feel like it's not enough. Like I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I know we all feel that way. But like, that's just all, especially now when the need is so apparent, like we've this pandemic has shown us the gaping flaws in our systems. And what other time than now is it to call it out? And And I'm hoping that, you know, we're all just going to continue to go forward and do that. Thanks so much, Kagan. And uh, honestly, it would be a lot easier for you to work harder if like your day job wasn't such a corporate grind. You know what I mean? Just the money swilling. Just, I mean, you're a pretty selfish guy, ultimately, is what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at. No, I mean, so important about transparency. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're, uh, that you're, you know, prodigal sunning it on the pod. You know, anytime I could like work alliteration in, I will. Anyone who's read my stuff knows that. <laughs> uh like past the point where it's useful let's be clear like over the top is the best description for like all the things that i am and do okay uh sorry henry <laughs> henry take it take us uh take us basically out of here the one the one thought i want to leave everybody with um is that the reason the reason we have the good news that we have today is because of the backwards nature of how America sees uh, criminals, people in prison, how they are devalued at every turn, and that a country, the UK, you know, that they were willing to say it. They're actually willing to say how horrifying it is for somebody to come into our carceral system. Um, and they're the UK. They're our brothers. I mean, in, in terms in terms of militarism, in terms of all the other empire aspects, you know, Five Eyes and such, um, they're they're with us. And so the fact that even though the court was completely against Julian on on the basis of his his charges and justifications for that, as as messed up as that is, that they were willing to say that his life has value in some specific way even if it's not the value that we say his life had that it does and that they were willing to say you know yeah okay we, we would have been willing to toss the book at him but there are these other factors here in america 
that does not happen. We don't talk about those kind of things nearly as um, as much as we should. I think that's one of the reasons that that Bernie wasn't more successful in the primaries is because he advocates for groups of people who have no voice, who have no no participation in that kind of thing. And I'm I'm thankful for the little bit of humanity that all of us got get from the positive nature of this decision. Um, you know the the the. The quest is not nearly over, um, even for Julian, but um, we all need something to help us keep going. And that's what this is. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And I hear the gratefulness of, of all of y'all in, in understanding that, you know, that hopefully he can finally get back to being with his family and, and have some peace, some personal peace for him. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. No, thank, thanks for that. I, and, and building on what you said there, which I think is important, is in, in a lot of these issues, what kind of all of us forget, I do all the time, is uh, there's like a man behind the the cause. You know what I mean? So the cause is bigger than the man, but there's still a man, right? Or still a, a person there suffering. Yes. Um, and that's important. And and like, I don't think we should minim you know, minimize, and no one here has been doing it. I don't, you know, I think it's important not to minimize the fact that 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 this is a win, right? If even if an incomplete one for for the for the man and something that can be built on. Um, I, I agree with everybody. It's hard to take uh, wins sometimes in our world, right? Our our, our vaguely shared world. Um, you know, it's like some people can't like they don't like to take compliments or, or gifts or something, you know, uh, we're just not used to it. I mean, it's tough. We're up against systems that are a lot bigger than us, that are a lot more powerful than us, that are a lot richer than us. And and for for every rare even Ben Cohen, there's, you know, 5000 just monsters with money. You know what I mean? And so it's a tough thing. And, you know, and, and again, my people are vaguely Irish. Uh, so thus, by definition, they're like fatalistic and they're martyrdom enthusiasts who love lost causes. But I do think it's important to recognize wins. Uh, acknowledge them because if we're going to do, if we're in the long game, right. And I'm a newcomer relatively, right. I was carrying water from the empire until not too long ago, but I think if we're in the long game, we got to acknowledge them and, 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 and take that. Um, I, I first kind of thought about these issues at all when I was teaching at the Academy, uh, world war one, the espionage act, the sedition act. And I was there during the late Obama years. And, uh, it really struck me. And I used to, t I used to tell cadets at West point this, I mean, it's wild what I got away with, but I did, I would say to them, like, I would tell them about Obama. I'd be like, hey, what, since Woodrow Wilson, no one, you know, more than all the presidents since, like Barack Obama, you know, this like liberal that you guys from Texas all think is this like Marxist, you know, has prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act. And I think it's important to recognize that that's, that's the statute that's at, at issue here, like a wildly unconstitutional and abused one that should have went the way of the dinosaur. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, there hasn't been a meteor to take it out. But I, as I was thinking about teaching and as I was thinking about World War One and the Espionage and Sedition Act, I got to thinking about Eugene Debs, as I do every Christmas when I want to piss off uh, dogmatic Christians. But, you know, he was a political prisoner, you know, and, and he was prosecuted and sent to federal prison under the Sedition Act, which was was in some ways even worse, although uh, it didn't have the staying power that the Espionage Act does, which almost makes the Espionage Act more dangerous. And it was, it was originally the Alien and Sedition Act, correct? That's right. Yeah. The original Alien Sedition Act is like 1798, John Adams, and it like follows through. So there's a long history of this. But, you know, Debs is a political prisoner and was a political prisoner who was vindicated after by historians largely. Um, Julian Assange is a political prisoner, and that phrase is just not thrown around a lot. 
uh, at least not in the mainstream discourse. Everyone here might use it, but that that's an important point, and I think that uh, that that's something we need to we need to constantly be saying that. And so, uh, I think what's great about this group, uh, besides uh, obvious attractiveness that Steve has raised, I have raised, um, is that this group's kind of not going to wait for history to like vindicate or appreciate. Julian Assange decades and a century after he's dead, which is so often what happens, right? Oh, many of the figures that we later laud and we later canonize were hated in their time, right? Even Martin Luther King, 75% disapproval the month, disapproval rating in polls the month he's killed, you know, and, and this group's kind of refusing to do that. Um, the people who are involved in action for Assange, you know, uh, the, the couch crew, uh, Jesse, everybody who, who works on these issues, especially the people doing the, the vigils and everything, which I've had the uh, privilege to be on twice. It's a huge win for them. And I'll just end by saying that when I was in the military, everyone talks about like this brotherhood factor. I mean, how many times have you heard a veteran who turns against the war say that I, I, I couldn't stand the military, but the only thing I miss was the friends, right? The people, the brotherhood and all that brotherhood and sisterhood. And, and that's important. And then when I, you know, I retired in February of 2019 and there was like a, la a loneliness and a lack of kind of identity and like, what the heck am I if I'm not a soldier? I started when I was 17, but I will say this, like I'm re-inspired daily um, by, by the people in quote unquote movement vaguely defined. Right. And, uh, so many of them are on this call. So I'm re-inspired by the incestuous bunch of insufferables. Write that down. That's our new, that's our new best friend's name. This incestuous bunch of insufferables. Uh, it sounds like, a, for, for it a, sounds like a, a Joyce short story. I think it is. I think maybe I plagiarized <laughs> it. Yeah. But uh, no, seriously. So I want to thank all of you for coming on. Two and a half hours. Uh, rocking it. Probably could go for twice that. Uh super inspiring and let's keep yeah. it going let's just keep this going the relationship <laughs> and the fight thanks so much for having me on danny oh no problem i wish Thank i had a mic danny. always a pleasure thanks hey. guys talk well, to you soon i'll talk soon thanks for listeners for tuning in nice to meet y'all keegan henry nice to meet you yeah we're on twitter at fortress on a hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. Listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be.